you know, one of the things that I learned, uh, you know, as doing all my work in behavioral finance was that these kind of biases are not restricted to any certain wealth level. Um, you know, people at, you know, the retail level, people at the ultra affluent level, every people are people. Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Stop financializing everything. What is true wealth? What's the right metric for success? Much of how we live presupposes that our incomes or spending is a good measuring stick. But can you really quantify success with a bank balance? Or should we include softer things like learning and love, generosity and gratitude, and happiness and well-being? Welcome to the Mindful Wealth Podcast, where we seek advice to help us lead wealthier lives and extend success to a wider community. And now, your hosts, Jonathan Dio and Terry Shower. Hi there, welcome to the 10th episode of the Mindful Wealth Podcast. Today we have the pleasure of chatting with Michael Pompian, who is the founder and CIO of Sunpoint Investments in fill in the blank, Michael. St. Louis. St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. We're here today to talk about his fifth book, Behavioral Finance in Your Portfolio, among other things. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. I really appreciate it. All right. I'd love to have you just start off by introducing yourself and your journey a little bit. Sure. Absolutely. I'd love to. So um, I started out in the uh, wealth management business uh, in around 2000. I worked for uh, PNC Bank. I was a private banker there. And then I worked at Merrill Lynch after that for uh, several years. So I was in the uh, what I'll call retail or uh, mass affluent segment and uh, got introduced to higher wealth levels uh, around, um, around 2005, six. And that was right around the time when I published my first book. Uh, and I, I moved from, I was living in the tri-state area in New York and New Jersey area, and then moved to St. Louis and uh, started working with ultra affluent clients, uh, family offices, um, th those kinds of clients, some institutions, but mostly, mostly families. And, you know, one of the things that I learned, uh, you know, as doing all my work in behavioral finance was that these kind of biases are not restricted to any certain wealth level. Um, you know, people at, you know, the retail level, people at the ultra affluent level, every people are people. Uh, and so that was sort of an eye-opening experience, you know, for me uh, to just, you know, see all of these uh, irrational behaviors, regardless of wealth level. Um, and then uh, I worked at a firm called Hammond Associates, uh, and then we got acquired by Mercer out of New York for 10 years uh, running their ultra-affluent family office advisory business. And then in 2016, started my own firm, Sunpoint, uh, with several colleagues uh, from Hammond Mercer. And uh, now we run a firm with uh, mostly ultra affluent clients. We have about three billion under advisement, um, but we're just now starting uh, to get involved with some of the, you know, I'll call it uh, mass affluent wealth as well. Um, and so I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your latest book. What is in it? Who's it for? Why did you write it? And how is it a bit of a departure maybe from what you wrote before? Yeah. Great question, Terry. Thanks. So. The first four books uh, were targeted really at financial advisors. So when I you know, first started writing uh, around 2000, 
was when I first started writing books. I wrote a few papers before that, but I was really more for the uh, financial advisor uh, segment. Um, you know, if you're an advisor, look for these biases or look for these behaviors and what you what you can do about them. Uh, and then, you know, what I realized over time was that uh, the and let me just back up a step and say the reason for that is that, and it was funny because I was having a conversation this morning on this exact topic, that when you're dealing with a client, they don't necessarily want to hear about their imperfections. And so the audience really wasn't investors uh, when I first started. But, you know, what's happened since the year 2000, 20 years ago, when I first started writing this uh, material is that behavioral finance has just exploded into the mainstream. And now individual investors are aware of their biases. They know the term behavioral finance. And so this fifth book was not so much targeted at financial advisors, but at investors themselves. So behavioral finance in your portfolio. So it's really written for the point to the point of view of the individual investor. That's the main difference. And there is some um, content that's been sort of re- uh, focus toward the individual investor from my other books. And then there's new content uh, such as uh, the coronavirus uh, situation and how uh, that was handled from, you know, from our standpoint here at Sunpoint, among others, some other new things. But that's the main difference uh, in the... Uh... And so I will also go on to say that I, two of the book, one of the books was mainly behavioral finance and wealth management was mainly about the biases. And then I wrote a book called behavioral finance and investor types, which was uh, an extension of that work. And this latest book has the continuum. It has the biases, it has the investor types, and then it has the application, how you apply that. So that's really what's, what's different about this book is it has the whole spectrum of, of, of work, almost my whole body of work in, in one book. Would you say that it helps one, the application helps one overcome biases? Great question. I mean, so when, when you peel back the onion a little bit on, on my work, what you find is that biases are, are categorized into two main categories, emotional and cognitive. And so emotional biases have to do with um, the, our old brain, our limbic system, you know, things that were deep, you know, age, you know, very old brain, uh, sort of emotional things. And then cognitive biases are really housed in the neocortex or the new brain where we do logic and math and those kinds of things. And so what the work shows and what my experience shows is that emotional biases are, are very difficult to overcome. How you feel about something is how you feel about something. If if losing money feels uncomfortable, it's you can't say to somebody you shouldn't feel uncomfortable about that. They, it's how they feel. Um, whereas with the cognitive biases, more the thinking biases, those are more changeable, more able to be corrected. So that's it. Really depends on the bias. Um, John, when asked answering that that question. Yeah. So I want to I want to kind of get into the purpose of our show here a little bit. So. On the Mindful Wealth Podcast, we talk about true, real life success, something we call true wealth. Now, A, how would you define true wealth? And if you'd comment on what are the lever levers that we can pull that bring us closer to this idea of true wealth? Yeah. So my idea of true wealth is really um, having the ability to 
enjoy the little things in life. Um, not so much be obsessed with, you know, material things. Uh, so that means things like, you know, family and hobbies and, you know, charity or whatever, whatever satisfies you as an individual. Um, and not so much the obsession of, you know, financial wealth. So having that balance between wealth and personal is something that that's what true wealth means, you know, to me. Uh, and so when it comes to the financial part of that, to, you know, kind of bridge the gap between financial and, you know, what I call, you know, the, the more complete wealth is really having that peace of mind with your actual wealth. Right. So having a plan, having a discipline uh, that you can sort of let that part of it take care of itself rather than getting so, you know, constantly correcting your, you know, having an advisor who you can count on, that sort of thing. And then that bridges the gap between letting you enjoy your, you know, your personal life. So that that's kind of how I see my role as it relates to trying to offer people that, you know, true wealth. When you when you think about that and, and and present company excluded, when you think about the financial services industry, do you think we do a very good job of serving the true wealth of families, or do you think we're way too focused on you know financial wealth? Well, I will say that you know in my experience, I've been doing this over twenty years, um, that it is a very competitive industry, and and you know, because clients will switch for bad performance and you know some some clients are very into the details of you know how did this manager do versus that manager why is my portfolio underperforming the s p 500 or this or that so in some ways being focused on the financial wealth part of it it comes with the territory because that's really what you know what our job is and you know of course the planning aspect of it as well so in some ways that part of it is client driven so you can't really get away from that um and so <clears throat> ideally we could get more focused on you know this sort of true wealth concept uh and i think you know some firms and people do are, are doing that and they're doing a good job of it i'm not sure the entire industry is there yet um but i think part of it has to do with the fact that it is somewhat it, because it's such a competitive industry. It's it's somewhat inherent in the makeup of the whole industry. But ideally, I think you're right. If we could get more focused on, you know, the the total wealth picture, that that would be, I think, better for both advisor and client. But so I guess we could kind of move from there and um, ask a little bit about the biggest obstacles that people face on their quest for true wealth. How much of that do you think is financial? How much of that do you think is, you know, mindset? Um, how do you see that? Like if you could, you know, give some advice, let's say, how do you, what do you, what do you think? Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think in some ways, you know, one of the things that is been part of my process since the beginning, uh, you know, I've created these behavioral investor types and that really, my, my thought process around those was in, in large part due to this, uh, study or, or my interest in Myers-Briggs and other like personality type uh, metrics. And I think in, 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 from my perspective, 
certain people, certain types of people are more calm and more interested in the mindful part of their life, the non-financial parts of their life. And some people are just, that's what their focus is, you know? And so I think part of it has to do with just who they are as people, you know, and, and in many ways, you're not going to change that about, about them. Uh, Cause especially if that's what their, where their emotional tendencies are or lie. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, that in, as advisors, what I like to do is to talk about the purpose for the wealth. You know, why are we doing all of this? You know, where, what, what do you have in mind? You know, and, and some clients are more receptive to that conversation than others. It's not some, in, in some ways, maybe it's none of my business. They just want to have their portfolio managed and that's fine. Um, but, you know, sometimes like, for example, a client that wants to take too much risk, you know, why are we doing this? Are we, you know, do we need this much volatility in the portfolio? And, you know, maybe we would be better with a lower, lower risk portfolio that we can stick with and be more comfortable with, you know, having those kinds of conversations that would allow that particular client to be more uh, even keeled about their life or their, you know, their financial life. Uh, so I've, I've had those kind of conversations and then, and, you know, they're not for all clients, but you know, some are willing to have that conversation. But like, if you could give, let's say, you know, one, I don't know if you can give a kind of a blanket statement of advice, but like, if you could say what, you know, the most common thing that you see people trip up on, like, what do you, what do you see a lot of on their, on their quest to true wealth, be it like balancing their financial concerns with their personal concerns or just on how they, their relationship to their investments in general? So I guess what I would say to that is that I think that again back to the types of a bit the the, the some very low risk tolerance investors meaning those that are unwilling to accept risk you know really obsess about the details and for those you know kinds of clients I would say you know you probably want to adapt the portfolio mix to that clientele in other words, give them a lower risk portfolio if they can reach their financial goals uh, and let them, you know, not obsess so much about or stress so much, you know, reduce the stress level of their financial life. And that could give them more time to focus on their, you know, on their, on their personal life. Um, but I don't think there's any really magic bullet answer, you know, advice to, to that, to that answer in terms of how to get people to focus on their total wealth, other than to say, uh, you know, focusing on if you can do, if you can have the conversation, the purpose, you know, what are we doing this for charity? Do we want to, you know, one of the things that we do with our clients a lot is focus on the second generation or the next generation uh, of wealth and educating them and getting them involved in the process. And that seems to work really well in terms of getting the, perhaps the, you know, wealth creator to focus on that total wealth concept. So that's, that is a kind of a tangible thing that I have found that you can do is to get that next generation. You know, again, that's dealing with the upper wealth levels. Um, but yeah, it's hard though, you know, to get, if people are stressed about their money and they're stressed about their money, it's hard, 
sometimes it's hard to get people off the dime. Um, but I do what I can, you know, yeah. I do what I can to, to try to get them to think of other things, you know, their total wealth, for example. So as you mentioned a little bit ago, um, there's a, there's a, you know, a natural tendency for us in the financial services industry to talk about financial wealth, right? Do, do, do you think that find specifically financial ambition and the quest for financial wealth are inherently selfish or is there a social context for financial wealth and a social context for personal success? Mm-hmm. I think there certainly is. I think, you know, again, part of that, that also may be a cultural uh, issue. You know, I have clients all over the country. Uh, I used to have international clients. I don't have any international clients anymore, but you know, people from the East coast, New York city, for example, are, you know, have one attitude towards their wealth and people in Florida may have a different attitude or Texas or, you know, California and, you know, St. Louis. So I think in some ways it does, there are some regional cultural differences about, you know, work-life balance, for example, wealth-life balance, maybe is a better term. Um, and so, uh, you know, you, that's a difficult thing to change. You know, you, you know, I, I see it. I see a lot of different attitudes towards wealth, you know, based on regions and, and, and cultures. And uh, in many ways, that's difficult to change. So my, I generally adapt to that. But in, but in terms of social, you know, social context, in the social context, um, I think there is a purpose, you know, for, uh, you know, can be can, for wealth. In fact, you know, many of my clients have foundations um, and are incharitably inclined. Uh, and so that's how they express. And, you know, there and, you know, I, I do a lot of volunteering, volunteer work and so forth. And, you know, part of the writing that I do also, I sort of see as a contribution to hopefully some people uh, to, for financial literacy and hopefully they can make better decisions and, and that sort of thing. But I do think there is, uh, Jonathan, a, a part of wealth management that's hopefully getting, you know, filtering through to social causes and, and um, especially in this country, you know, it, 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 it is somewhat, you know, a, lo- a fair amount of the uh, charity that's done is based on, you know, wealth being put back into the system. I, I was actually, I'll just add one point on that. I was at a conference. I actually went to a live conference about two weeks ago. And I talked to a gentleman who was uh, essentially like the, a guy that did a, a lot of advice to to charities, to foundations and other places about how they should don- donate their money. And he was talking about the fact that there are two uh, large uh, think tanks in DC, one conservative, one more liberal, about how uh, charity should be spread through, through the system, through the United States. And, um, you know, some people think that it's very much the individual's job, the meaning individual wealthy people, to cure social ills in, in, in the society. And a whole other uh, thinks that, yes, that's fine, but that the government, you know, should be involved in that process. And, you know, our country, I think, as you know, right now, is quite divided in terms of those, those ideas. Um, and 
So it's not quite as clear cut maybe as some other countries that have more, you know, uh, more clear cut ideas around that, that concept. But I find that to be a fascinating topic uh, in general about how, uh, you know, we should try to s solve some of the social ills of, of, the, of our country. Yeah, I mean, yeah, well, I mean, d definitely, like, if you compare your model to, let's say, the Canadian model, like, I think we have a, a social net that flattens out some of those things. But I think the debates exist the same way. Like, we also have, a, you know, a problem with increasing income gap. We also have the same problems as you do. It's just that maybe they're a little bit muted because there is more of like a government safety net underneath. Yes. Yes, yes. And so there's so many viewpoints. I mean, there are many people who think Canada's uh, healthcare system is far superior to the United States system. And there are some that feel that Canada's system is terrible compared to the United States. So, you know, it's just your viewpoint, you know, uh, on... Um, so I'm not sure if this is the place to debate that, happy to do it, but uh, you know, that, that's, that is something that is inherent in, in our society in the United States is that um, there's a raging debate. I mean, it's, it's gotten even more acute, as you know, about you know, whether it's the government's responsibility to, to get involved in these kinds of things or not. Um, and you know, as wealth owners, you know, as you know, there are certain folks, you know, if you look at like a Bill Gates or Warren Buffett who think uh, that they should give up their, you know, wealth to the, the greater society. Uh, and then, of course, there's people who don't feel that way at all. Uh, and I'm not sure we're going to get to a magic bullet on that one either. But, uh, you know, I think the general concept is hopefully that part of our jobs as wealth managers will help create wealth that will, in some parts, make its way back into uh, the greater good for the society. Yeah, that would be very good, I think. <laughs> um, and if we can maybe just switch like more to the market, discussion of the market. You talk in your book about homo economicus. Um, and you, could you maybe tell us what you think traditional economics gets wrong about human decision making and explain what, do you, what exactly homo economicus means? Absolutely. So great, great question. This, this is, a, to me, a fascinating area. So around 1900, uh, you know, 120 years ago, uh, the um, neoclassical economics, you know, came into the picture. And what this essentially dealt with was um, the utility of the consumer. In other words, that consumers will always maximize their personal satisfaction with their economic decision-making. Uh, and so that was extended even further to this idea of that people are perfectly rational, uh, perfectly self-interested and have perfect information. And, you know, I don't know, I didn't live 120 years ago, but that, you know, may have been a more possible thing back then you know, there was no such thing as the internet. There was no such thing as uh, television, really. Uh, and so maybe what, what these folks were talking about was in their little village, 
they were able to go from you know one store to the other store and they could figure out and have perfect information okay you know maybe that maybe that's what they were talking about but of course in today's world that seems to make no sense at all that you could have perfect rationality perfect information uh and so that homo economicus was that person that could have has this perfection as it relates to understanding everything they needed to understand to maximize their economic satisfaction and so part of the wor earlier work you know when you that was sort of 1900 when you get into like the 60s 70s uh time frame when you know Kahneman and Thaler and others were Sheffrin were doing this work they were looking at that and saying of, of course that makes no sense and if, and then of course you had in the 70s you had this idea of um, efficient markets. And that's really where, what I was looking at when I was doing my behavioral finance work, I said, I don't, I don't think that makes a lot of sense. I don't think people, you know, the price is not always right of every security. Um, and so, uh, I guess the, the big, in the bigger picture sense, there, the bigger picture sense, there have been these ideas that there, there's some sort of utopian way of being economically perfect but we're humans and humans make mistakes. And uh, that's the bottom line. And uh, I think when I was doing my original work 20 years ago, even a little bit before, it, I was fighting an uphill battle. These, you know, the Kahneman, Thaler, these other people were unknown people. I was reading their work on this stuff is magic. Uh, and I love it. And I kept reading, reading it. And that's what got me to want to start writing and thinking about all this stuff. Now, of course, they all those people have won the Nobel Prize. So um, I think, you know, homo economicus was an idea that's, I think, been completely outdated. It's no longer uh, uh, possible. It's not, it's not a relevant theory. But I think, you know, ideally, it has some kernel of truth in that people do try to maximize their satisfaction. Um, but being perfect about that is, I think, you know, not possible. So, um, bordering on the ridiculous, actually. Yeah, well, that 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 that's one another way to think about it. So, if we can kind of segue from that into some of the biases that you talk about. So, if we're not a perfect Homo economicus, can you tell us a little bit about loss aversion, confirmation bias, and recency bias, or if, are those the top three you would pick? Yeah. So uh, those are great, great biases uh, to talk about. Well, well, let's take up, take one step back. And so I mentioned earlier, there's cognitive and emotional within the frame of cognitive biases. I've identified two types. One uh, are called belief perseverance bias. And what that means is, is that people get a belief in their mind and they have a hard time coming off of that belief uh, or decision when presented with information that may be counter to that belief or decision. Uh, how could I be wrong? So that's cognitive dissonance in a nutshell. And uh, confirmation bias is, is that type of bias where people seek information that confirms their beliefs and they do not necessarily seek information that runs counter to their beliefs. The example I always like to use is, you know, political television 
you know, where if you're a conservative thinker, you tend to watch one channel. If you're a liberal thinker, you tend to watch another channel. And you may, for entertainment purposes, go see the other side for five minutes, but you don't necessarily sit there and try to take the other side. I mean, some people may do that, but I think the majority of people seek information that confirms their beliefs. And then, you know, they yell at the TV and say, yeah, yeah. So that's confirmation bias. Um, the other type of bias, uh, cognitive bias, is information processing. So that's a situation where you're just not thinking about the whatever it is um, correctly, whatever that, whatever the situation is. You're not processing, you're not, the logic isn't there. Um, and so what were the three, Terry, that you mentioned? Um, so my, my question was about loss aversion, confirma confirmation bias, and recency bias. So, you know, recency is a, a, an information processing bias. So that's the situation where what you're, you're looking at the most recent data, but you're not taking into account the full picture. So in the investment realm, what often happens is you look at a, a manager that's in a strategy that you're interested in, uh, you know, for example, value. You know, value investing over the last 12 months has been fantastic. Um, but over the past five years and 10 years, you know, hasn't been so fantastic. So um, the question becomes, do I want to start investing in value because the most recent data says it's a good place to be? Well, in order to make that decision, what we do is we look at what are what is the valuation of the entire category. And if you look, it happens to be that right now, value investing is actually not that cheap. It was. Um, particularly after COVID, but it's fairly valued to maybe a little overvalued. So you really need to not so much look at the most recent period, but look at the whole, the whole picture. So that's recency. And then loss aversion uh, is arguably the most famous bias, partially because Daniel Kahneman, professor from Princeton, uh, won the Nobel Prize for his work on prospect theory, the basis of which was loss aversion, which essentially says that the pain of losses in his work was two times more powerful than the pleasure of gains. And so then I think that actually in certain investors, it's even higher than two, you know, two times. Whereas in a rational world, it shouldn't be that way. You, you should feel the same about gains and losses. Um, that's an emotional bias. And um, yeah, so that's, a, those three are very common very common biases that you mentioned. But maybe if we could, you know, kind of throw, throw the floor to you in a more open way. Like I, I'm really interested in how you like divide, you know, cognitive biases and emotional biases. Um, did we miss anything with those three questions? Like, is there, you know, as far as cognitive biases go, is there anything else you kind of want to add or are those the three main ones? Are those even, you said loss aversion is more emotional. Um, well, the other one I like to talk about is mental accounting, which is also an information processing bias. And so what happens there is that sometimes investors put money in mental or actual accounts for different purposes, right? So they'll have um, their vacation money and they'll have their uh, retirement money and then they'll have education money and then their bill pay money. So they have all these different you know, kind of pots of money and that's not necessarily a bad thing because it does promote saving behavior. However, 
if when you if you were to download all of those account holdings into uh, one spreadsheet and look at the whole picture, what you're likely to find is that you may have you know 30, 40 percent cash of the whole in the whole portfolio because you're building up cash in these different different places, uh, and so it can lead to suboptimal overall asset allocation. And so that's something I've seen you know numerous times, and that can be overcome with education. Uh, that's so that's more of a cognitive you know, information processing. You're not emotional about that. I mean, maybe the there's a little bit of emotion having to do with the savings, but it's mostly this cognitive idea that um, I, that eventually I'm going to have a suboptimal portfolio. And yeah, I should if I want to earn more money, I should have a more holistic view. So that's another you know kind of cognitive bias that that comes up. Um, and uh, I think, you know, from the from the fifty thousand foot view, uh, what what I really think is important for uh, investors to understand is that emotional biases. Again, I, I've said it before, but I'm going to repeat: it, they're more difficult to overcome because the, it's how you feel. Whereas the cognitive and more thinking biases. So when you're when you're looking at any of this, you know, my work. Um, there's a web website. This is not a self-promotion thing, but if you want to look, there's michaelpompian.com. There is a, um, a test there for investor behavior. And what I would recommend is that if you identify certain biases like loss aversion, um, you know, like mental accounting, one of these things, try to understand if that's emotionally driven or, you know, thinking or cognitively driven, um, because, once you understand that, you'll see how potentially you can change that behavior or how difficult it could be to change that, that behavior. Um, and so I, I don't think we have time to get, get into all 20 of the biases. Um, I could put them up on the screen if you want to, if you want me to, but. Um, we'll, just, we'll just suggest people go to the website and check it out for sure. So I, I actually want to go into the book for a second. And I read, I read uh, uh, on page 202, or maybe it's 203, I'm not quite sure. But I'm going to read this passage, and I'm going to ask you a question about it. So the, the passage is, if you can limit the number of traumatic episodes that inevitably occur throughout the investment process by delivering smoother, read here, expected investment results, because you've created an investment plan that is customized to your behavioral makeup, a stronger portfolio is the result. So first, I love the premise that you can deliver smoother investment results with a portfolio customized to your behavioral proclivities, okay? But I wonder if you can expand on the importance of what you put in parens there, which is expectations. You know, you, you read smoother as expected. Can you talk about that? Right, right, yeah, exactly. So what I mean by that is that what we do uh, for our clients is we create a, uh, a projected return for an entire portfolio and risk um, based on an asset allocation that is customized to their risk tolerance and behavioral makeup. And so by knowing what, what that expected return is supposed to be uh, for the portfolio, and uh, you're less likely in, in our experience to deviate from that, want to change uh, from that during periods of stress. And that's those traumatic episodes. Um, 
So I had a, a client um, call me up a few days ago and we were just talking about this stuff, you know, behavioral stuff. I was telling him about some videos I was doing and just behavioral stuff because he's into it. He likes to talk about that kind of thing. And he said, Michael, let me tell you, he's a relatively new, new client to about two and two, two and a half years. He said, when the coronavirus period hit in March and April of 2000, I called you up and I told you I wanted to sell, you know, 10% of my risk assets. And I said to him, I don't think that's a good idea. Why? Because we've had periods like this before. 2008, stocks went down. But if you look within the next year, they were back up. And if you sold at the bottom, you, you don't know when you're going to get back in. And, they, and, and that just blows a hole in your financial plan. And I told him, I said, I don't recommend it. And he said, okay, I'm not going to do it. And he told me he, he was looking back on that episode. He said, I can't tell you how much I appreciated that. That this, that keeping me on track to what I was supposed to be doing and my portfolio is doing great. And thank you very much. And, you know, that's our job is to, to try to smooth out that process, manage behavior as best we can. Um, and that's, you know, that's what I try to do, you know, with so, clients. Yeah. So, so it's, it sounds like in the planning process, you create an expectation and it is, it is having the expectation and having an appropriate expectation, maybe not outsized, but do you also build an expectation of volatility? Like we have this portfolio, you can expect it at some point, it's gonna do whatever loss of 30%. You can ex you actually build that into the conversation so that when it happens, yep. yeah, okay. Yeah, we have a lowest expected return number and it looks horrible. Um, and in fact, in 2008, it actually went outside those bounds. I'm not sure how many clients actually noticed that, but I did, you know, it, it, it was not, you know, Investment returns are not normally distributed. That's the, 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 the models are based on the normal distribution, but, you know, we do our best. It's the best, I don't know of any other model that comes, you know, closer than just the normal distribution. So, um, so it's not perfect, but there is a, you know, one out of a hundred return that we show that looks very ugly. And we say, you know, one out of a hundred, this may happen. So it is built in there. Um, but we, you know, we talked more about the lowest likely return versus the worst possible return. Um, and so, but these, you know, 08, that was the most difficult time in my career. Mine too. Yeah. I mean, coronavirus, I thought was going to be really bad, but the fed just came in and the amount of liquidity that came in was so much greater than what happened in 08. Um, I think they they use that as a model for you know for for coronavirus, um, but I remember just what the phrase that sticks in my mind about that period is staring into the abyss, you know, and that's really what it felt like for I don't know, a month or something, you know, three weeks, where you know just things were just really really bad. Clients were terribly frightened about you know about what was going on, and it was difficult as advisors to to say, you know, hang in there, and which is what I did. Um, and I, I did say things like, well, if you're worried about real estate, maybe you sell a little bit of real estate, but stick with the plan. 
And of course, sticking with the plan was the right advice. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's great, great, uh, great question though. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I find it so interesting because I work in the real estate industry and the thing with real estate is that it's illiquid. And so people have panics, but like it's a slow panic, you know? So it's not like the minute something starts going wrong, like, you know, your tenants freak out or like there's some horrible water damage or like something happens in the market. Like it's not like, oh, I'm going to sell, I'm going to sell. Like even if that's the feeling that they're having in their heart, there's no way that that's even possible. And then, you know, the sale costs often make them like stop and like, okay, I'm going to have to kick like 40K to the real estate agent. Is this really what I want to do right now in a panic? So it just strikes me like that it's, you know, in terms of how you guys have to manage expectations when people are like constantly with their finger on the button. Like I now have a greater appreciation for why mindfulness might be so important <laughs> in financial services. Just in my, what I was talking about were, you know, you know, REITs, like publicly traded REITs, which you, you know, but yeah, an illiquid real estate, that's, um, was, that was all, I mean, oh my goodness, what was going on? Like, I don't know if you remember, but, you know, Las Vegas and other places, Arizona had overbuilt so many condos and, you know, it was just, you could, you couldn't sell any real estate, like hard real estate, unless you wanted to give away 80% or 70% yeah. of their, of your value. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, so that's in some ways, if you own hard real estate and things are down, you're probably not going to sell it. Yeah. You, I mean, it's, it's not that it's any less tragic, but it's just that like the degree to which all of those biases and your emotional reactions can sway you in the moment. It's just not as rapid of a cycle anyway. So whatever, I just, I kind of noticed that as a kind of an interesting thing. No, that's, that's very, you know, very true. Yeah. Um, but if we can sort of just um, move on to talk about your uh, types a little bit. And so what I wonder with this kind of modeling is, you know, you kind of like build like maybe these silos of like different types of, you know, investors or, or different ways in which our thinking might be slanted. How porous do you think that model is? Or do you think like, let's say if I do a test, am I going to be in one type and I should only learn about that type? Or are these just ways of thinking about like the different voices in my head and how they might come in, you know, in specific poor choices. Great question. I mean, very porous, I would say. Um, I, you know, I've got, I wish I could throw the slide up, but I know I can't. Um, but I have a, uh, I just, I did this presentation yesterday that I had this particular slide up, it's in my mind, where what I did was I assigned certain of the biases that, that sort of define each type. And what I say at the end of that is that, look, if a, a, a preserver, which is the lowest, that's the least risk tolerant investor, uh, and I'll, I can mention the others in a minute, but the preserver is the least risk tolerant, has loss aversion uh, as the, you know, one of the key biases, doesn't mean to say that the independent doesn't have loss aversion because they may feel the same way. What these are, are you know, biases to look out for if you're that type of, if you're, if you are that low risk tolerance investor or an independent is a, is a type that tends to like to do a lot of research, you know, the engineer thinker type that comes to meetings or has their own ideas about what to invest in. There can be some flaws in how they do their research, you know, such as availability bias or recency bias. 
uh, where they're only looking at the most recent data. So doesn't mean that they don't have loss aversion. It just means those are the more likely to be the more prominent biases of that particular you know, type. And so if you do identify yourself as, or if you're an advisor, your client as you know, one of those types, you should not take them as absolutes um, because they're just, they are, it's a framework um, that gives you the, you know, four types where you can kind of more easily identify, okay, what type of investor am I dealing with of the four? And then the big picture thing is two of the types are driven by emotion and the other two are driven by more cognitive. So the least risk tolerant and the most risk tolerant are driven by emotion. Uh, and we can talk about some of the biases if you want to. And then the two in the middle, the follower and the independent are more driven by more cognitive biases. So those two um, types of investors are easier to change their thinking because they're more cognitively oriented where you know it's more difficult to change the thinking of the least risk tolerant and the most risk tolerant investors. So can you can you just tell us what the types are very quickly? Because I'm not sure that our all of our audience members know it. So the four types are the the preserver, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you about four types, and then what I'm gonna do is uh, tell you where they rank on the on the risk tolerance spectrum. So the the preserver. Um, is, you know, the least tolerant of risk. And, I, and what I'll do is I'll, in a minute, I'll, I'll talk about, well, first I'll talk about risk tolerance and then I'll talk about the biases. Um, and then the next, the next uh, in terms of risk tolerance, uh, but is called the follower. Uh, the next after that's called the independent. And the next after that's called the accumulator. So the accumulator is the most risk tolerant the next down in risk tolerance is independent. The next down is the follower and the least risk tolerance, the preserver. And as I was saying, the, excuse me, the preserver and the accumulator are driven by emotion. So some of the biases, for example, that you're likely to see with the preserver uh, are, is loss aversion, uh, which is you know, the feeling the pain of loss is more acutely than the pleasure of gains. Another bias that you can see um, with a preserver is status quo. So status quo bias is the idea that people don't like to make change. Uh, they don't want change. You know, if you recommend, I think you should change your portfolio or I'm thinking about changing more por my portfolio. No, nah, I think I'll just leave it the way it is. I'm gonna, I like the status quo better than, better than um, making, taking action. And that's consistent with sort of lower risk tolerance, you know, types of investors. Uh, endowment bias is another one that's emotionally driven. Endowment bias has to do with um, if you own something already, you attach more value to it than if you didn't own it. So, for example, if let's say your grandfather 20 years ago gave you some IBM stock, gave you, you know, 20 shares of IBM, and you still own that and it's still in your portfolio and oh wait a second that one stock is 20 percent of my portfolio 
that's not smart, but you know, grandpa gave it to me and I don't want to sell it because that's my attachment to him. So that's, you know, versus like, okay, if I were to build my portfolio today, would I buy 20% of that stock? And the answer is probably no, I wouldn't. So that's endowment bias. And that, you know, that's sort of a preserver, you know, mentality, um, having that emotional attachment. Uh, so that's, that's preserver. Shifting over to accumulator, we're also emotionally driven. Uh, overconfidence is a big one where just this unwarranted faith in one's, uh, you know, investment skills. I mean, people can have investment skills, but you, you being very dogmatic about a particular stock or a particular investment, you know, anything can happen with one investment. And overconfidence is something that high high risk tolerance, very aggressive investors, you know, can have. Um, illusion of control is a similar concept where uh, people may have controlled the outcome of, let's say, a business or a division of a company or something. They've been successful in business and because they were able to, in some way, control that outcome and then feel they can do the same thing with their investment portfolio. And what they find is that they often cannot change they simply you know can't can't sorry not change but can't control you know that outcome so illusion of control is another bias that comes into uh into play there another one i'll just quickly mention is outcome bias where uh people look at the outcome but don't look at the process of what happened so you know if a if let's say an investment manager outperforms a bond manager outperforms the the index, the Barclays Ag index, the big, you know, the main bond index by 4%. Oh, okay, that's where I want to put my money. Well, actually, let's look at the risk it took to get that extra 4%. So looking at the outcome, not the process is another, you know, bias that can happen here. So my, Michael, one, one, uh, I, I just want to say, uh, it's starting up to you, the, I, I'm an accumulator, and I, I was, uh, really upset to find out that I was more subject than others to overconfidence, you know, through my whole, through my whole world into a tizzy there for a bit. Um, one of, uh, I just want to say, I know, I know, you know, this person, like one of my favorite financial industry pundits is Nick Murray. And he says, and he has said this for 25 years, 30 years, maybe that the worst financial mistake is the one you're just about to make. Right. So how do you keep these behavioral issues top of mind? So when the very nature of the psychology behind them is to hide. So how do you maintain access to these tools when their intention is to be hidden from you all the time? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what I found is that, okay, so I'll give you an example. So one of my more, more important clients, uh, I've been working with this particular individual for many, many years and so we have evolved over the years uh, to, we used to do, you know, more quarterly kind of check-ins uh, where, you know, we would just, you know, kind of let a, an entire three-month period. I mean, we may talk in between a few times, but, you know, the main investment review would be on a, you know, quarterly basis. Um, and then, uh, which we'd have, you know, let's say a two or three hour more or more meeting. Okay. Then we decided that wasn't quite enough communication. So we then went to monthly meetings. So they weren't quite as long uh, as that, but they were you know, more frequent. And, and so now we actually do weekly meetings. And so 
my point here is that I think keeping the communication channels open uh, as much as possible will expose, if you will, the thinking that some folks are doing, uh, you know, and so I would say the answer, you know, in my mind is, you know, as much communication as possible is uh, the, the key to keeping in front of, and you know, these potential poor mistakes. Um, and I know maybe that sounds obvious, but that's really, I think the best way, you know, to do that. So, uh, Michael, I just want to say we've been I, I'm shocked that almost an entire hour has passed, but I want to I want to say thanks for coming on. Um, how do people connect with you if they want to follow you on social media or where do they find you? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I do have that website, michaelpompion.com, Sunpoint with an E investments with an S dot com is our firm website. Um, Michael at sunpointinvestments.com is my website. If anybody wants, I'm happy to. Uh, interact with anybody. And then I do do Twitter as well. I need to get a little better with that. I'm not, I'm pretty fairly active, but not as maybe as active as I could um, on Twitter as well. And then LinkedIn, of course, um, I do a fair amount there. So thanks for coming on the show, Michael. Yeah, much appreciated. And Terry, thank you so much. It was super fun. Really, really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Wealth Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, remember to give us a rating and leave a comment, subscribe and share. You can find Jonathan at mindful.money and you'll find Terry at terryshower.com. Their books, Mindful Money and Mindful Landlord are available on Amazon. Look to the show notes for our guests' contact info and any links discussed in today's episode.